Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're looking at verses 14 through 30. We finally come to the place where Jesus begins his public ministry. This has been building towards this point in, in Luke, going back and forth initially between John the Baptist and his ministry and Jesus. And, and then we, we saw Jesus' baptism followed by his temptation. And now we see him going out in his public ministry and immediately facing intense challenge. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, as we were reminded this morning, that you speak to us through your word, and that we should be ready and prepared to listen and to respond. And Lord, it would seem that as we go through this passage, many were not prepared to hear the words of Christ. Many respond in rejection. Lord, may that not characterize us. May we respond with faith and hope. And we know that that's only possible if your spirit is working in and through your word to bring the conviction and comfort that we need to hear. And so give us eyes to see this truth, give us ears to hear it, and help us to respond appropriately. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and took the place where it was written, or found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, 
so that they could overthrow him or they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, previously, Jesus went through this time of affirmation at his baptism where he hears confirmation from his father and this commission, or as it were, in, in, to go about his mission um, in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? receiving that empowering for the particular task that, led, that was before him. And, and that was followed by this great period of temptation, right? It, it was from this great height of closeness, hearing from his father, sensing and, and seeing the spirit coming upon him, and then going out and immediately being led by the spirit into this time of temptation, intense temptation, uh, and, and fasting, Right, and spending 40 days in the wilderness, alone, isolated from everyone else. Ultimately, a picture of, of his perfect obedience for us. But that affirmation was followed by temptation. And now we see, even in this passage, what begins with acclamation, begins with praise of his teaching. And then, shortly after, followed by doubting and, and then, ultimately, persecution, a desire to Put him to death right at, the, right at the start there. And so this is the second time that Jesus found himself staring down from a dizzying height. Remember, the Satan had, the devil had tempted him the first time, putting him on top of the temple and looking down and saying, cast yourself down and see if the promises of God, your father, will come true, if the angels will not bear you up and protect you. And he overcomes that temptation, and now we find that he is indeed protected by God from harm, from almost certain harm, led to, a, led to the edge of a cliff, people very intent on pushing him over. And he somehow escapes. So it seems like an overreaction of the crowd, doesn't it? As you read the passage, as you consider what he has said, he's Preaches about his coming as the Messiah. Sounds like good news. Followed by this, these two illustrations of um, Elijah and Elisha. And then they say they're ready to, to kill him. I mean, it just seems like an overreaction. What did he say that offended them to such a degree that they wanted to kill him? Well, we'll come back to that as we make our way through this. But we want to begin with verses 14 and 15 and consider this this period of acclamation that he receives where uh, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So the Spirit that empowered Jesus for ministry at his baptism, strengthened him to withstand Satan's temptation in the wilderness, now continues to fill him in his teaching ministry, right? He's going forth into all the surrounding regions, teaching in the power of the Spirit. And so his fame is beginning to precede him, and those who hear him are spreading word about him, and he's teaching regularly, going into the synagogue. Everyone's rejoicing about it, and then responding with acclaim and praise. In fact, the language there for praise is the same one that, that would be reserved for God. So they're praising him highly. 
And so we remember John's own spirit-empowered preaching in the response of the crowd to him. And it foreshadowed even a greater preaching ministry of Jesus, right? going forth, proclaiming spirit-empowered words to which people are responding in amazement. And yet, it would seem that the same ones who initially were amazed by him were prepared to reject him. It's not enough to be enamored with Jesus, right? To even think of him as a great person, a good person. He said good things. That's not enough, right? If, it hasn't, if his words have not transformed us by his spirit, by the same spirit that empowered him, and so we do need to question these things. We need to ask our children these things, right? Are, are they merely, do they merely know about Jesus? Do they know the right answers? Or do they have a relationship with him? Do they know him? Do they want to be with him in prayer and in his word? These are important things to ask and not to neglect, not to assume, right? And so it's good to praise Jesus. Of course, it was, it was good for them to do this. He does, he. He was worthy of their praise and of their admiration. But it's even better that we listen to him, that we understand him and respond in worship and adoration. So where do we go in order to do that? Just like our application from this morning, we go to his word. Whether it's individually, as a family, as we gather together as a church, we sit under his teaching. And we notice right off the bat here, Jesus honored the public gathering of the saints. He went to the synagogue. It was his custom to go. And in fact, he was in a place where there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion and doubting. He didn't say, well, I'm going to stay home because it's just too frustrating to go there. How many of us have thought that? And he, he went to the synagogue. He taught he helped them to understand, right? But he was committed. It was a custom for him to go. He didn't forsake it. So he honors that public gathering by attending every Sabbath. And he receives that acclamation, and it's followed by an explanation of his, of his preaching, really an example here. Now, he, the, the verse there from 14 and 15, I mean, he spends one verse on his preaching in Galilee. If you look at the other Gospels, it was a lengthier time. He could have gone into greater detail about what he did there in Galilee and how many, you know, but, but he just summarizes it in one verse in order to give an example that's almost hard to understand, right? At this point, or it, it would seem like it comes right after he starts his ministry, he gets this discouraging experience of rejection. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, came to Nazareth, and he's been brought up there. So everyone knows him. Surely this was a packed synagogue. People are gathering. They want to see the carpenter that they used to go to, the child that they knew, they saw growing up. This is a, a big return for him. And it would imply that he is teaching in the synagogue regularly, right? He, it was his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. That's, that's all there in, in the same section, the same sentence. That was, that was his custom to do. And it would seem this was the, the extent of his preaching at this point, was, was going into the synagogues and, and proclaiming um, the truth. Now, the practice of, of the synagogue worship 
we understand a little bit from Mish, the Mishnah, which is explaining what, what they did. And, you know, I, I don't know the exact location, but if you look at some of the commentaries here, you can, you can look at what their practice was, was to come together to sing some psalms, to um, read a passage from the law, and then to have a second reading as well from a prophet. And then that was followed by a sermon or an explanation of the readings. So it would seem that what Jesus did here, our, our picture in our minds is that Jesus kind of is, is coming up, he's taking the scroll, he's reading it, and then it says, and he sat down. So we imagine him going back into the seat and looking back at someone else who's now going to preach. But in fact, more than likely, he, he sat down right there and everyone else was, was listening to him, right? They, as he read the, the scroll, everyone would have stood in honor of God's word, and then they, they all sat down and listened to him as he was seated in his preaching. Just a, a custom, doesn't mean we need to practice it in the exact same way, but the idea is he is the one explaining his own reading here. And of course, what Luke provides here is, is just a, a snapshot of that. He's not giving us all of the details of the, of the sermon here, so we don't technically know how long it was or how short it was. Maybe this really is all he said. This, this is being fulfilled in, in your hearing. And just letting that resonate with the people. But, but could you imagine being there, right? Witnessing this reading. He ends this quote. This is a familiar passage that he reads from Isaiah. And yet he takes something out from the end, having to do with judgment. It would have been something that they would have wanted to hear. His audience was waiting for that, right? that he was coming as the Messiah to judge, to overthrow Rome. They were expecting him to be this political Messiah. And in fact, he cuts that short because at least on this first coming, he came to save, to seek and save the lost. And so I wonder sometimes if we don't fall into the same trap or category. I know as, the, as Christian, the Christian church, there's a theology that really continues to perpetuate this idea that, that the reign of Christ should be a political one, right? that, that we should be all about the same things that, that this quote re- refers to, the proclamation of good news to the poor, the proclamation of liberty of the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, that we should be about physical restoration of people's bodies, right? taking care of the poor. Um, praying for healing for the blind and, and, and proclaiming liberty to the captives. And even, you know, it's called liberation theology, right? It's, it's, it's a desire to, to change the, the structure of the church and the government in order to create uh, an easier path for those who are oppressed, those who find themselves as captives. Now, it's not so much a bad thing right, to, to recognize. To, and we know that Jesus responds to this with, uh, or Jesus quotes this, and then the following passage to, is him healing people, doing exactly what he just quoted here. So there is a physical component to the fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus will, will do. But there's a much deeper spiritual one as well. And we also need to recognize that what he's doing has implications for individuals, not structures, Right? He's, Jesus isn't going to the, to the governor 
and telling him to change the way they're doing things. Right? He's not telling the people, change their voting habits. <laughs> right? He's, he doesn't have a political agenda here. He's come as the Messiah to do a work, and he's proclaiming good news for the poor, liberation of captives and the oppressed, to be a healer of the blind. Now, when they heard that in the audience, they would have said, well, what about us? You came to proclaim good news to the poor. What about us who aren't poor? You want to heal the blind, but how about healing the, our pocketbooks or something, you know, taking care of us? It's interesting that their response was to say, that's talking about someone else, right? Other people are poor. Other people are, are, are the captives, the oppressed. And instead, what Jesus is saying in this declaration is that I came for those who recognize their own poverty, those who recognize their own oppression and their own idolatry, right? The things that they, that they have done uh, to bring that oppression sometimes upon themselves, Sometimes it is through their upbringing. And those who are spiritually blind, that I think is the more fundamental point that Jesus is making here in his reading of this passage. Kent Hughes says, those who, most, who are most in need of mercy and grace often know it the least. Right, we point at everyone else. That's, that's good news for them. Right, but what about me? And so instead of reception... They reject Jesus. And we'll see that clearly in this next section, verses 22 through 30. All the people who heard him begin to speak well of him, right? He's a good speaker. They're amazed. And it, and it does imply that they're, that they're mostly amazed at his ability to speak, his, his communication skills, right? They're impressed by him, but they certainly are not moved or persuaded by him, because their amazement turns into doubt. Isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the person we've seen growing up? I mean, he's got such humble beginnings. Why should we believe him? And so these doubts form in this, uh, uh, what Jesus responds saying, you'll surely quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, asking him to do the works there in his hometown that he'd already done in Capernaum. We've heard about the things you're doing. Well, prove it to us too. Show us who you are. All right, he says, surely you'll, you'll say these things to me. And so Jesus, he doesn't take their flattery. He sees maybe that they're impressed by his ability to teach, and yet he calls them out immediately. He knows their hearts are not ready to receive him. And these examples from Elijah and Elisha reveal an era of apostasy. This was a time when the people rejected God's prophets. Right? Elijah was sent and he was rejected by the people. And so the example he gives here is that he goes and rescues a Gentile widow from Sidon, even though there were many widows in Israel who were suffering from the famine. But he overlooks all of those widows why? Because they had rejected him. 
as their prophet. So he goes to the Sidonian woman who receives him, who listens to this crazy man who says, give me your last meal and I'll make sure that you know, God has, has promised to, to not let your food run dry, to continue to provide for you. So an act of faith is expressed by this Sidonian Gentile instead of Israel. And then Elisha, he's sent to heal, although there are many lepers in Israel, he's sent to heal Naaman, the Syrian. Not just any Gentile, but a Gentile commander of an enemy army. So this is like God sending his prophet to, to rescue a general in ISIS. You know, we, what about everyone else? What about the generals of our armies? Rescue them. Well, they had rejected him. So in their mind, they're hearing him say that God is, is rescuing the Gentiles. And they can't handle it. God's rescuing the wrong people. But what it shows us is that God's grace is held out to anyone. Right? There's no ethnic, social, or economic barrier to receiving the gospel, to entering into the kingdom of God. And so this is a shocking message that Jesus declared. And it so upset the Israelites that they were ready to kill him. They were amazed by his skills, but unpersuaded by his message. And it causes us to ask, how are we responding to the message of Jesus? Do we believe him or do we reject him? It's a simple question, but it's one that all of us need to answer. Right? We've, we see the, the praise and acclamation of Jesus. We see the proclamation of Jesus here. And then we see his rejection now, now, I want to just point something out here. For Elijah, for Elisha, and for Jesus, what was ministry success? What did it look like for them? It looked like a lot of rejection from people. And that doesn't mean that we start by attempting to offend everyone in the audience every time we proclaim the gospel. But it does mean that we shouldn't be surprised by slow growth, by no growth, or even by declining growth at times. Right? Where the gospel is truly preached, there will be both those who accept it and those who reject it, those who turn away from it and despise it. And so understand here, Christ has come as a Messiah who will deliver physically and spiritually. And the first thing we have to do in order to accept that truth is to recognize our own spiritual poverty and to cry out to Christ for deliverance. To recognize that this is describing who we were or who we are. Right? This is good news to those who are poor. Poor in spirit. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are held captive by their sin. Recovering of sight to the blind, those who cannot see the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
And those, that is a message for us. And it's a message that's worthy of giving God all the praise for bringing to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this simple reminder that even as Jesus is proclaiming what we may hear initially as a message of, of grace, a message of hope, a message of rest, 